In early 2017, Graham had a good job and a London flat. But just a few months later, he had lost everything. His home had been taken over by a gang who were plying him with drugs, tracking his every move and using his home as a base to sell crystal meth and GHB. Graham is one of a growing number of men being exploited by criminal gangs in the UK's chemsex scene. The largest ever survey of men involved in the world of chemsex found that more than a quarter have been sexually assaulted while on GHB. Nearly half had been given drugs without their knowledge, and one in five had been deliberately overdosed. Welcome to the iPodcast. I'm Molly Blackall, and this week we're joined by our special correspondent, Patrick Strudwick, whose reporting has transformed the conversation around chemsex. Patrick, thanks so much for joining us. You've been reporting on this for a number of years. So tell us firstly, for listeners who might not know, what is chemsex? In its simplest terms, chemsex is when men meet each other for sex, facilitated by certain key drugs. So principally, crystal methamphetamine, otherwise known as meth, and GHB or GBL, otherwise known as just G. Those are the two main drugs. They both enhance the sexual experience and disinhibit people. And when those things come together, men meeting for sex, it could be two, three, 10, 20, and those particular drugs, usually in private homes, but sometimes saunas or sex clubs, that scenario of the drugs, the sex, the men, is what typically we call chemsex. That definition can expand and has expanded for various reasons over the years, It's not just sexualized drug use. It's a particular set of circumstances and particular demographics all coming together. So tell us about instances where maybe this isn't as consensual as in the description that you gave or where this becomes a criminal issue. Yeah, I mean, it's really important to start out by saying that to me and many others, there's nothing wrong with having sex with people you don't know. I don't think there's necessarily a moral issue about taking drugs. There's a legal issue, for sure. Morality I'll leave to other people when it comes to drug taking. Where my reporting has really dug deep into all of this is where people are being harmed. Really, this began quite accidentally. About 2015, I started having conversations with other gay men, just socially about what people were experiencing on the chemsex scene. I just started hearing things that concerned me about people's boundaries being disregarded, disrespected, either within sex itself or within the drugs being taken alongside the sex. They sort of brewed away in my head for a good year or two. And then in the second half of 2016, there was the first big, major trial involving chemsex crimes. And that was the trial of Stephen Port, the serial killer. 
who use GHB, which for listeners who don't know, is a chemical that was once an anaesthetic, but in recent years has been used as an industrial cleaner. It's extremely potent and toxic and extremely dangerous in the wrong hands because of what's called the dose-response curve. That means tiny increases in the dose can have dramatic effects on the user. So one more milligram, one more drop might be enough to send you unconscious. Another might be enough to put you in a coma and kill you. And Stephen Poor was using GHB to render his victims unconscious. They were young gay men to then rape them and kill them. His trial in autumn of 2016 was really the first time, I think, that the media and also many services woke up to what is happening or what could be happening. And indeed, at that point, I thought, this kind of thing doesn't just happen in isolation. This cannot be just one person, one bad apple inflicting this kind of danger. So I started going back to those people that I'd spoken to socially and asking them to put me on to other people who'd had experiences. Together, their experiences formed a big 5,000-word investigative story, which for the first time unmasked the crimes taking place within chemsex. I don't wish to stigmatise anyone or anything just so long as no one is being harmed. That's not the case. Lots of people are. And what that story first showed was that people were being sexually assaulted, raped, drugged without their knowledge. Sometimes they were being forcibly overdosed in order that another person could have control over them for their sexual desires to inflict violence upon them sometimes, physical violence. That story, which was unbelievably dark and difficult, shocked everyone when it was published. It went viral around the world. More than a million people read this story of what might otherwise be seen as a niche, underground, very dark subject. And at that moment, I suddenly thought, this isn't just a few dozen gay men in London. From the responses I was getting from around the world, I could tell that I tapped into something that had been completely ignored and unmapped. So that was the beginning of my investigations. And in the years since, they've simply dug deeper, further, as the scene itself has progressed and the criminality within the scene has become more sophisticated. Patrick interviewed Graham, a man in his late 20s whose home was taken over by a chemsex gang. His words have been voiced by an actor to protect his anonymity. I've worked in the gay scene for many years and uh, what came with that was befriending a lot of dealers over the years. I was a bit of a party boy. And then one of them moved into my house and he was a friend. But another dealer also had keys to my house because of where I was in my life. I was lonely and I was vulnerable. I had a mental breakdown because of business decisions, a tsunami of personal circumstances. And I was taken advantage of in April 2017. And from April 2017 till August 2017, 
I have never been so scared in my life. I was given drugs when I wanted them. People sold things from my house and I never really wanted them in my house. And there was other people that started to come from other parts of the country and other parts of the world. Someone even flew over from Spain and I couldn't get them out of my house. There were actually two sets of dealers. There was, there was this one guy and then there was another chap who had keys cut and they used to gaslight me. They coercively controlled me. They knew where I was going. They had trackers on my phone. They knew when I was coming home. It was just horrific. I was threatened. I was bribed. I was blackmailed. And this went on for a long time. And I was starting to find things in my house like weapons and ropes and gaffer tape. People thought because I was taking drugs, I was just imagining things. And I really wasn't. One day the sofa would be on one side of the room and then it would be on the other side. And this is where they started to play with my mind in terms of the fact that nothing seemed real. But it was real. Because I can't use my landline and I can't use my mobile. It was just absolutely crazy stuff. And I was completely isolated. I just wanted company. I was lonely. They stole my identity online. There was money taken out of my accounts and, and then new phone contracts from different providers opened in my name. When it came to a head, I actually ran to the police station and asked for help. Um, they took me back to my house for a full search of the house and it looked like I'd been burgled. They ransacked the whole house. They went upstairs to where the dealer was. like, And then they came down with two massive bin bags full of drugs, enough to keep North London happy for two months. I, I just burst into tears. I was like, it's not mine. It's not mine. It's a harrowing story, but it's not an isolated case. Patrick has been researching the growing criminal networks behind this to find out who is doing it and why. Initially, it seemed as though it was isolated individuals. You had bad actors, people who were using the situation, the secrecy and the vulnerability of those within it to abuse others. That was in the early days. But in the intervening years, What's become horribly apparent is a development of organised crime surrounding this scene. Now, if you think for a moment about the circumstances in which chemsex is taking place, typically people go onto a dating app like Grindr, start speaking to people they don't know, and arrange a hookup. They arrange to go round to the private home of someone they don't know. They arrange that, you know, They'll bring the drugs with them or the other person will have the drugs. And there might be other people that come into that setting as well. So you already have people within a marginalised community, i.e. gay men, doing something which is sort of secretive, you know, anonymous sex, doing something that's also criminal, taking drugs. So there's already quite a lot of secrecy and stigma surrounding it, which means that if you're wanting to exploit other people or harm other people, 
you know that those people are much less likely to go to the police. So, that's the context. Then if you imagine criminal gangs whose prime motivation is money, this is a perfect playground for them. The gangs that are developing around chemsex are in some ways unusual, partly because of the people that are in them. What we see now is a mixture of gay men, straight men or mostly straight men, bisexual men, and also women. There can be up to two dozen people in these chemsex criminal gangs. I've seen kind of spiderweb diagrams with lots of different people all connected up and how they're connected and how they work together. What they often do is approach people on a dating app and look out for signs of vulnerability. The person could be obviously or seemingly isolated, lonely, could be naive, and in some cases they could have learning disabilities. And initially what they'll do is a kind of grooming process where they will be all friendly with them, they'll be all pally with them, they'll say, oh, do you want to have a good time? I've got some free stuff. I'll come over, we'll get down to where we'll chill out. Oh, and I'm going to bring my friend with me because they've got money. They've got some more drugs. And sometimes one of the people involved in that initial contact can be a woman who might seem unthreatening to the man. They will go around their house. And once they're there, they might start inviting other people within the criminal gang to come in, have sex with them, take more drugs, give them more drugs. And while they're there, well, they've got a whole house to roam around in or a whole apartment to roam around in. They can take their credit card. They can set up accounts in their name. They can do all sorts of things because if someone is unconscious for several hours and you're in their home, well, this is an incredible opportunity. Because the problem here, again, is that that person effectively invited them in in the first place. And so people can blame themselves and think they've been stupid. They shouldn't have let them in in the first place. In the same way that it's quite common for sexual violence victims to blame themselves. Oh, I shouldn't have walked home. That's the context in which it's taking place and why it can just carry on for months and months. And if that person is lonely and isolated, maybe they're not working, maybe they don't have a family, there isn't anyone checking up on them. Journalism like Patrick's that brings attention to injustice is what we do every day at I. To support this important work and keep yourself informed with daily news and features, consider subscribing. We have an offer on for 50% off a digital subscription and our weekend newspaper. You can get 12 months for 59.99 or try three for 19.99 you can head over to inews.co.uk forward slash podcast to get this offer now. As we've heard, this lethal cocktail of chemsex and criminality is killing scores of men in the UK. And the underground world where these deaths take place means police are playing catch-up. The police have developed 
enormously since the Stephen Port case. Many listeners will be aware that the Stephen Port case was terribly handled by the Metropolitan Police. There have been inquiries into the handling of it. The conclusions are that the police absolutely failed. They didn't understand Chemsex, they didn't understand the gay scene, they didn't understand GHB, and that enabled Port effectively to carry on abusing and killing people. That caused a big shock within the Metropolitan Police. The media furore surrounding it and the furore from families of Port's victims meant that the Met really had to act. And they have done. They introduced lots of training to frontline officers to understand and recognise the signs of criminality within a chemsex context, as they call it. Because it could be completely baffling to someone who doesn't know what they're dealing with or what they're looking at, or what the potential extra dangers are for the people within it. So I think they have done a lot of work on the front line. What's really heartening about the last three years is the extent to which multiple services have connected up. So three years ago, I was at the launch of what's called Project Sagamore. Project Sagamore is a groundbreaking initiative by criminal justice services, by the police, by the prison and probation service, alongside addiction services, LGBT services, mental health services, to have regular meetings, share information, share data, give advice, best practice, so that all the institutions that find themselves on the front line of people being abused within chemsex can better understand and better deal with what they're faced with. Because, as I've said, criminality is becoming much more complicated and, frankly, darker, and people need to understand it. So I would say that Britain is really at the forefront of recognising, understanding, and dealing with this. That said, Project Sagamore is very much a London-centric focus. For example, the Prison and Probation Service, who were the first London Prison and Probation Service, who were the first to really get on the front foot of tackling people who commit crimes within a chemsex context. Now, I think it would be easy for someone listening to this to think, this doesn't affect me or anyone I know. These are just a small group of gay men doing bad stuff, or sometimes bad stuff, in private. Why should I care? Why should public resources be allocated to this? To which I say, if you think that it won't ever touch you, you're mistaken. There are lots of people who are harmed in all sorts of ways, accidentally, as a result of this, where you have criminal gangs seeking to exploit, seeking to make money, seeking to overtake someone's house. Even the idea that this is just a gay thing is no longer true. There are women who are being caught up, sometimes also exploited within those criminal gangs as an instrument of some kind to help further facilitate their exploitation of other people. The women who've been arrested and put on trial are often themselves long-term victims of all sorts of criminality. So this is a problem for everyone when there's criminal and abusive elements within the chemsex scene. We mentioned how seminal the Stephen Port case was in terms of police's handling of this and also the public knowledge around this. How many convictions have there been for these types of crimes? 
to what extent is justice being served on this or is it still a very nascent process? Well, there's certainly increasing numbers of arrests and convictions. I mean, dozens upon dozens. I have a really sobering fact for you. The furore surrounding the Stephen Port case was, of course, centred around the fact that he murdered four young men. That prompted lots of media attention and political outcry and questions about the police. Since then, in London alone, 10 more people have been murdered on the chemsex scene. God. Have you heard about them? No, no. Probably not. It's not just the number of murders that we need to take into account. The sheer volume of sexual violence is astronomical. In 2019, I made a documentary for Channel 4's Dispatches about how GHB was being used to rape and kill gay men. As part of that, we conducted the largest ever survey of gay men who take GHB or GBL. When we put the survey out, this is the production company, me, in conjunction with Terence Higgins Trust, an HIV charity. We all thought it's going to take months to get enough respondents to this survey for it to be statistically viable, to really paint an accurate picture. We put the survey out. Within a week, we had thousands of responses. It absolutely knocked me over. We ended up with 5,000 responses, and I think that was just within two weeks, of gay men who take GHB. The results of which, I'll just give you a couple of examples. 28% of those respondents have been sexually assaulted while on G. Wow. 82% knew of someone else who'd been sexually assaulted while on G. 47% had been given G without their knowledge. 18%, so nearly one in five, had been deliberately overdosed. That's shockingly high. That is absolutely shocking. The impact of chemsex abuse continues long after the incident itself. Graham managed to escape the gang and sought help with the police. But even now, he's not fully escaped what happened to him. I went into treatment in August and that was it. It was a rented property. I gave it back. I was renting it through a friend. I never went back there. I've had intensive therapy, PTSD therapy, trauma therapy. I've been on numerous spiritual treats. I've done so much work on myself. I'll never forget what happened to me. Never. I'm, I'm still not able to walk around certain streets in North London and feel safe. And if things are too loud in a space, my body doesn't like it. I, I can't get too enclosed in somewhere either. I've never had anything like this before. I know how it felt and and what happened to me afterwards. Losing my hair, nightmares, the pain, all those physical things. That What happens to you when you're traumatised? I ran away from London. I, I couldn't go back. I couldn't. I was too petrified. There's a lot of fear around this. I was I was threatened with my life. And when I came out of treatment, I actually dropped the charges just to ensure I could crack on with my life and and get on with my life. And, and that's what I've been doing. Experiences like Graham's are becoming more and more common. Having covered these crimes for close to a decade, Patrick has some ideas 
about what needs to change to put a stop to them. What I'd like to see is a more national response and understanding. There does need to be more training, more resources, more guidance for people. I I know several instances of senior police officers reaching out to people who work within chemsex drug dependency saying, I need you to explain this all to me because I don't understand anything. There needs to be more in-depth conversation within the gay community. And that's complicated. I think it's really important for people to understand that much as it might seem like everything's okay for gay people these days because we have legal equality pretty much, in reality, there is still a lot of damage being done, particularly psychologically, to gay people, LGBT people. A lot of people are still very badly bullied at school. Some people still get rejected by their families. Particularly some people from certain faith backgrounds can be particularly rejected or isolated. The mental health profile of of LGBT people is disproportionately low compared to the straight population. There's a lot of loneliness and isolation. And I think that's one of the key underlying factors here. People desperately need escape and connection because they're insufficiently connected and affirmed in the rest of their life. And that makes them vulnerable. So on the one hand, you have that backdrop. Then you have a gay community which is so used to being vilified that it doesn't really want to talk publicly about these issues because we're already subject to, you know, we've seen an increase in violence in the last couple of years on a homophobic basis. So it's difficult to have the conversations publicly, slightly more easily done privately. So I would just ask that people have those conversations with their friends, with their loved ones. That really needs to happen. The need for some people to escape and to connect is greater than their need for anything else. And so they will ignore and deny the risks both to themselves. People don't like to think about their own vulnerabilities and that of other people in order to keep themselves in this kind of bubble. People often talk about a sort of chemsex bubble that's just separate from everyday life. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Molly. You can follow more of Patrick's groundbreaking reporting at inews.co.uk, where we'll bring you up to speed with the most important stories from around the world. And if you've been affected by anything we've spoken about today, you can reach out to charities such as gallop.org.uk or londonfriend.org.uk. We've put the links to them in the show notes. I'm Molly Blackall. You can follow me on Twitter at Molly Blackall, on Instagram and TikTok at molly.blackall. We're always keen to hear your feedback, so do send us any comments on podcasts at inews.co.uk. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week.